This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. If this isn't your first last meal, you will have heard me explain a handful of times that how much you find out is based on how much you fuck around. And if you never fuck around, you never find out. But what about those rare cases where someone fucks around and doesn't find out? At least, not to the extent that they should. Some lucky sons of bitches manage to do some absolutely heinous things and only get a slap on the wrist for it. They beg and plead to the parole board for a second chance, claiming they're rehabilitated and they're not a danger to society. Nicole from True Crime South Africa can tell you all about parole boards being too lenient. It happens down there a lot more than it does here. But even in a country where we execute people for murder, sometimes convicts slip through the cracks. Today's episode is probably going to piss you off. It's one of those controversial ones about the many failures of our justice system. By the end of it, I'm sure you'll be asking yourself why the fuck I had to make this episode at all. Today, we're looking at a specific situation that happens way more than it should. Paroled murderers who killed again. New Year's Eve 1975 was like any other day for 15-year-old Raul Meza, a resident of Austin, Texas. He dropped some acid and was watching cop shows on TV. My kind of fucking party, goddamn. This apparently wasn't enough excitement as Meza decided to grab his rifle and head to a convenience store near his house. He emptied the cash register before leading the 20-year-old clerk into the walk-in freezer and shooting him in the back of the head. By the grace of God or medicine or whatever it was, the clerk survived and was able to testify against Meza. I'm assuming due to his age, Meza only got a 20-year sentence. He served just five of those years before being released on parole. Again, probably due to his age. Just a few months after Meza was released on January 3rd, 1982, he kidnapped an eight-year-old girl named Kendra Page while she was riding her bike. According to her older sister, Sean, Kendra was a kind soul. She was very happy and energetic and loved riding her bike. Meza took this sweet child away from her family. He raped her, tortured her, and strangled her to death before leaving her body in a dumpster at an elementary school. A few days after the murder, he confessed to what he'd done. And this is the part where I tell you he was tried, found guilty, sentenced to death, and electrocuted. But that's not what happened. Not even fucking close. The whole community was terrified to let their kids walk to school after what Meza did. According to an interview with Kendra's sister done by KVUE News in 2023, the older girl had watched as her little sister was abducted. Both girls' screams can be heard in a video of the incident. Meza got just 30 years for this abhorrent crime. But he at least had to register as a sex offender, right? No. The plea deal was for a murder charge. The rape wasn't part of it, and he wasn't required to register as a sex offender. Anything to get that win. Kendra's sister Sean goes on to tell the interviewer that their dad fought tooth and nail to keep Meza locked up as long as possible. He knew that Meza was dangerous. 
After their father passed away, another sister named Tracy took over advocating for Kendra and writing letters to the parole board in an attempt to keep Maisel locked up as long as possible. But as you probably guessed, their efforts were ignored. Tracy gave an interview before Maisel was released the second time. He somehow heard this interview and made it a point to say, I'm going to get the girl, in reference to Tracy, whose little sister he had raped and murdered. This sick motherfucker wanted to kill another person simply for expressing anger that he was getting out of prison. Maisel was moved around a lot after he was paroled this time. No one in the community wanted him around and it was for his own safety that he was shuffled around to almost a dozen different cities. Maisel went so far, goddamn, this makes me angry, as to hold a press conference to try to convince the public that he was a changed man. There is nothing I can do to change my past. I can only tell you that in my heart, I know that I will not intentionally cause harm to anyone again. On May 20th, 2023, police responded to the home of 80-year-old Jesse Fraga after the man's niece called and requested a welfare check. She hadn't spoken to her uncle in over a week and was very worried about him. When the police arrived, they found partially dried blood in more than one room of the house. Several knives were also found before they stumbled upon Jesse's body. Jesse's niece told them that leading up to this incident, Raul Meza had lived with him. He'd moved out on May 12th. So how does Jesse Fraga know this psychopath? Jesse and his wife had visited Meza in prison after the murder of Kendra Page. Jesse was a retired probation officer who just wanted to help out a man who was down on his luck. Generosity is such an admirable quality but it's dangerous. Jesse had been stabbed several times. His neck had been punctured and his spine was broken. Not an easy death for anyone, especially an 80-year-old man. On May 24th, just four days after Jesse's body was discovered, someone called the police and asked to speak with a detective. This conversation was recorded. The stranger on the other end of the line said, I think you're looking for me and confessed to several murders in Texas, including that of Jesse Fraga. This man was, obviously, Raul Meza. He told the detective that he'd been in and out of prison his entire life, and after getting out in 2016, he'd murdered a lady soon afterward. It was on Sarah Drive. This was in reference to a woman named Gloria Lofton. She was 66 years old when she was found deceased in her home in 2019. A cause of death was not able to be established, and all her neighbors assumed she had passed from natural causes. Male DNA was found on her body that would later be matched to Meza. He confessed to strangling her to death, I'm assuming after raping her. From all accounts, Gloria was a kind woman who did anything she could to help out those in need. She didn't deserve what happened to her. None of Meza's victims did. As of the time of recording, Raul Meza Jr. is currently sitting in Travis County Jail. He's looking at one count of capital murder. This means he's eligible for the death penalty. You know, Texas has the highest number of executions in the country, and they've let this motherfucker out for murder once already. I'm gonna be pissed if they give him anything less than death. He's had way too many chances. I'll try to keep an eye on this one and update you guys if they do decide to put him to death. With how old he is, though, probably just gonna rot on death row until old age takes him out. 
Oh, and the police are looking into a handful of cold cases that Meza may be connected to because he definitely stuck to his word about not intentionally hurting anyone else again. What a fucking joke. This next story is short, but not very sweet. We're traveling just a stone's throw away from my current desert wasteland of residence to a place called Salt Lake City, Utah. I don't actually live in Salt Lake, in case you haven't figured that out yet. I'm adjacent to it in one of the many cities that surround it, if you can call them cities. It's all just one massive chunk of city, only divided by postal codes to break up police jurisdictions and postal facilities. Everything north of Provo and south of Ogden is Salt Lake to most Utah residents. Anyway, enough about the salty mess. Viva Nash was born in Salt Lake City on September 10th, 1915. But he wasn't a typical good Mormon kid. He was a troublemaker. He'd do his first prison time in 1930, at the age of 15, for armed robbery. God damn, what is it with these psychopaths going to prison at 15? When I was 15, I was out raising hell too, but I never did anything to catch a charge. What the fuck? In 1947, Nash shot a Connecticut police officer and served 25 years for it. Not a lot is available on this guy, so the details are kind of sparse, but it appears as though this police officer actually survived. Nash went on to murder a postal carrier named David Woodhurst in 1977 and was given two life sentences to be served in Utah. Fuck this guy, seriously. Nash somehow managed to escape from his work crew in 1982 and made his way down to Arizona. During the course of a robbery at a coin shop, he shot the employee, Gregory West, three times. Another employee was present but thankfully wasn't hit. As Nash tried to get away, the owner of a nearby store aimed a gun at him and told him to stop. This kind of shit is why we need more guns. An armed society is a polite society. Except this time, shit kind of went sideways. Nash fought with the dude in an attempt to get the gun. He was unsuccessful, and the police arrived soon after that. Arizona wasn't about to fuck around with this guy. His attorneys tried to argue that he was senile and legally incompetent to stand trial due to his age, but this was not accepted as a mitigating factor. He was sentenced to death in 1983 for the coin shop murder. Viva Leroy Nash died in prison on February 12, 2010, at the age of 94. He was the oldest American on death row at the time. This one breaks the theme a little bit because he escaped from his life sentences rather than getting paroled on a murder charge, but I wanted to throw it in here anyway because, well, Utah. You can't keep a man locked up indefinitely for attempted murder. Or can you? Maybe it depends on the state. But you do have to let him out for armed robbery. Nash was bound to get out eventually. It's a shame his crimes escalated. My feelings on the justice system in this country can be summed up in one sentence. They hang the innocent and let the guilty go free. I've personally witnessed the state try to hang an innocent man, twice. They will go to any length to get their win, even if their victim is not a victim at all. It leaves me wondering if they only do that to make up for their failings in keeping those who are actually guilty locked away. 
young offenders are treated very differently. Yeah, I know, their brains aren't developed all the way and blah, blah, blah. But there are some crimes that shouldn't warrant any special treatment just because someone isn't legally an adult. Pedophilia is one, murder is another. Maybe the death penalty isn't appropriate for someone under the age of 18, but life in prison sure is. Tara Sue Huffman was just five years old when she disappeared during a walk to her friend's house on May 21, 1981. Her friend lived just down the street, and this was the 80s, so parents were a lot more relaxed about letting their kids roam the neighborhood unsupervised. After the neighbor called the Huffmans to let them know Tara never made it, her older brother left the house to go look for her. He rode around on his bike for two hours before giving up and calling his parents. The police were called and a quick scan of the neighborhood was conducted. This led to a full-on search party being formed and Tara's body was found in the woods. She was partially buried in a pile of leaves. The young girl had been beaten to death and her genitals had been mutilated. This wasn't a case of a killer clown in a van stealing children or some other crazy shit like that. Tara had been killed by someone she knew the same person who found her body. Timothy Buss was just 13 years old at the time of the murder. He was another kid in the neighborhood and knew Tara very well. After a long analysis, it was determined that he was responsible for her death. The state of Illinois, to my surprise, actually tried him as an adult despite his age. He was given 25 years. Just 14 years into his sentence, Buss was paroled. The authorities claimed he was rehabilitated and could safely be released back into society. So he moved back in with his parents in the same neighborhood he lived in when he killed Tara. If you didn't already know what the theme of today's episode is, you could probably assume that he got out and led a normal life, stayed out of trouble, all that. Well, you'd be kind of right. He managed to make it a whole two years without getting the law on his back again. August 7, 1995 was like any other day for nine-year-old Christopher Meyer. He'd been out playing at the river and was riding his bike home. His mom had told him to be home by 5 p.m., and he would have, if not for a chance encounter with a now 27-year-old Timothy Buss. Christopher's mom went out looking for him, but when she couldn't find him, she returned home and called the police. Search parties were formed, and during the following week, one of the boy's shoes was found in the Kankakee River. His bike was located in a wooded area across the river. The rest of his clothes would be found scattered in a parking lot and along a path near a hunting area in Kankakee State Park. Two teenage boys who were fishing at the park, Jacob and Tom, told the police that they'd seen Christopher talking to a man. Jacob knew Christopher because he'd seen the boy at the boat launch before. The dark-haired man talking to him was wearing the 90s child molester uniform, a mustache, cut-off jean shorts, and a turquoise tank top. Jacob talked to this dude at some point and learned that he was from Aroma Park, had family nearby, and had just returned from Florida. They talked about fishing, and Jacob noticed that the stranger's tackle box had lures that were too big to use in the area, and a fillet knife. Not really odd for a fisherman, but it would probably weird me out to see a man in a pedo costume with a fillet knife. Jacob wasn't able to positively identify the man in a photo lineup or in court, 
but did say on the stand that the defendant looked similar to the man he'd seen with Christopher. Other teenage boys had seen Christopher and interacted with him on this day. A boy named Edward was at the boat launch with his friends Darren and Dustin, and they observed Christopher washing mud off his shoes before speaking to someone, grabbing his bike, and heading out of the parking lot. Darren had spoken to the boy, suggesting that he ride his bike into the river. God, to be young again. <laughs> Christopher said he had to go because he needed to be home by 4.30. Edward noticed a car driving slowly around the parking lot around this time. He would later identify it out of nearly 30 cars in the sheriff's department parking lot as the one he'd seen leaving the boat launch at the same time as Christopher. There were a handful of other witnesses at the river that day who had either seen Christopher, the dark-haired man, or the gray Oldsmobile that Christopher had followed when he left. Many people came into contact with Bus after Christopher went missing, including some of his family and a motel clerk. They all noticed his odd behavior. The cut-off jean shorts were the red flag for me, though, for real. On August 15, 1995, nine-year-old Christopher's body was found in Will County. Two sheriff's deputies were searching the Kankakee State Park in the early morning hours when they stumbled upon a shallow grave covered by a piece of plywood. Christopher had a brutal death. He was found naked with a contusion on his jaw and 52 cuts and stab wounds. Most of those were on his torso. The medical examiner concluded that the wounds were inflicted by a sharp, narrow knife, like a fillet knife. There was also evidence that the same type of knife had been used to cut Christopher's genitals. In fact, his penis had been entirely removed. None of the wounds inflicted, including many directly to the lungs and one to the heart, would have killed him immediately. His death was drawn out and excruciating. Tell me again, why we let child rapists out of prison? A sketch was drawn of the man seen at the river, and Tara Huffman's brother Richard immediately recognized him as Timothy Buss. When the cops came looking for him, he was found at the river, fishing, of course. His car was searched, and they found hair and blood in it that belonged to Christopher. This case was obviously open and shut. There was no defense, no blaming someone else, no reasonable doubt. Buss murdered and mutilated another child. He was arrested and charged with one count of first-degree murder, one count of aggravated kidnapping, and one count of aggravated unlawful restraint. He was given 35 years on top of a death sentence. Timothy Buss had his sentence commuted to life without parole in 2003. The state of Illinois does not know what the fuck they're doing. I think most sane people would agree that crimes of this nature against children are deserving of the death penalty. But this is Illinois, so I guess I shouldn't be surprised. After all, they only executed one member of the Ripper crew, and it wasn't even the main motherfucker. To those who say that the death penalty isn't a deterrent, I have one thing to say. Dead pedophiles don't abuse kids. Rehabilitation isn't always an option, especially in cases like this. I've heard a handful of arguments over the years that, with the right treatment and support, no, fuck you, addicts get treatment too, and a lot of them still fuck up years down the road. You harm a child, you get the needle. Who the fuck cares if it deters people? 
Prior prison record. Received on February 4, 1965. Four years for burglary and attempt to commit burglary. Paroled on December 27, 1965. Received October 9, 1968. Death sentence for murder with malice, commuted to life on August 29, 1972. Paroled on October 11, 1989. Returned on October 11, 1990 for parole violations. Paroled again on December 6, 1990. My ex's dad is a career criminal. An overall good guy in the sense that he'd give you the shirt off his back if it was all he had, but the dude can't stay off the meth long enough to get his life together. I check the Department of Corrections website every now and then, just out of curiosity, and he's almost always in there on a theft charge or drug possession. But those aren't violent crimes. I don't even think the dude's ever had an assault charge. So it makes sense for the state to let him back out to do his thing and give him more second chances than I can count. This next guy I'm going to tell you about. Well, I read you his fucking rap sheet. You decide for yourself if he should have been let back out. John Allen and Addie McDuff had a total of six children together. This was back in the 40s when large families were common. J.A., as he was called, ran a very successful concrete business during the Texas construction boom of the 60s. Addie was known as the pistol-packing mama because she once threatened a school bus driver with a gun after he kicked one of her sons off the bus. Part of me is wondering if maybe her son was fucking around and the bus driver was just making sure he found out. I don't know. The fifth of the six children was Kenneth, who would be known in high school as a bully. He never went after anyone his own size and instead opted to attack weaker individuals. On one occasion, he picked a fight with one of the popular kids and got his ass handed to him. This loss was the reason he quit school and went to work for his father at the concrete business. Kenneth was arrogant, definitely. He would go on to brag in interviews that old ladies loved the way he mowed their lawns and it made other people jealous. Kenneth McDuff started his criminal career very young. In 1964, at the age of 18, he was convicted of 12 counts of burglary in three different counties. They went pretty easy on him, though, and gave him 12 sentences of four years to be served concurrently. Concurrent sentences make no fucking sense to me. You did multiple crimes, you should get multiple chunks of time added to your sentence. It's not like he burglarized 12 houses at the same time. But he was young and stupid, and maybe the judge didn't want to throw the book at him. McDuff was paroled in 1965. Yep, only a year behind bars for those 12 burglaries. You think he learned his lesson? McDuff would do a little bit more prison time after getting in a fight, but was released very soon after being arrested. According to a man named Roy Green, McDuff liked to brag about his crimes and even claimed to have raped and murdered two women. The men worked together for McDuff's father, on August 6, 1966, after a long day of work, they were driving around, looking for a girl. Near a baseball field in Everman, Texas, the pair spotted three teenagers standing beside a parked car. The one who stood out the most to the men was 16-year-old Edna Louise Sullivan, who was there with her 17-year-old boyfriend, Robert Brand, and his 15-year-old cousin, Mark Dunman. These poor kids were in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
McDuff parked the car about 150 yards away from the group and brought his 38 Colt revolver to threaten them. He ordered all of them into the trunk of their own car before telling Green to follow behind in the car they'd arrived in. After a quick drive along the highway and into a field, McDuff ordered Edna to get into the other car. He then told Green that he'd have to knock him off and fired six shots into the trunk of the victim's car. Green was told to wipe the fingerprints from the stolen vehicle. Green later tried to claim that he was coerced into committing the crimes with McDuff. It's arguable, I guess, but at the same time, why would you go anywhere with someone who had bragged about raping and killing women? The men drove Edna to another location where she was raped repeatedly by both men before McDuff asked Green for something to strangle her with. Green handed over his belt, but McDuff ultimately decided to use a piece of a broomstick instead. After discarding Edna in the bushes, the men went to a gas station for drinks and headed back to Green's house. McDuff buried the revolver on this property and washed his car at another friend's house. Green confessed to this friend's parents the next day. They, in turn, told Green's mother, who urged him to turn himself in. He and McDuff were arrested soon after. Roy Dale Green was convicted of first-degree murder and given 25 years. He was released in 1979. Pretty sure he learned his lesson about hanging out with psychopaths as there is nothing after this that ties him to McDuff, and I can't find any other crimes he committed. It may surprise you to hear that McDuff got a death sentence for these murders. This was commuted to life for some reason, and at this point, he decided to hire a lawyer. It wasn't enough to get out of the death penalty. He wanted to throw the blame onto Green with some compelling evidence that he was the actual killer. This worked. Yeah, the parole board was impressed by this evidence. Unfortunately for McDuff, his attempt to bribe a member of the board was met with an additional two years tacked onto his sentence. Those two years wouldn't change anything though. The parole board found him able to contribute to society and released him in 1989. McDuff went on to work at a gas station and attend Texas State Technical College. Just three days after his release, however, it is believed that he started killing again. On October 14, 1989, the body of a 29-year-old woman named Serafia Parker was found along I-35. She had been strangled to death. McDuff was never charged with this crime, but he violated the conditions of his parole and landed himself back in prison after making death threats to a young black man. Addie McDuff, who you'll remember as Pistol Packing Mama, paid over two grand to have her son evaluated by some attorneys in order to get him released again. He was let out on December 18, 1990. Less than a year later, on October 10, 1991, McDuff picked up a prostitute named Brenda Thompson and tied her up in his truck. The pair came to a police checkpoint and Brenda alerted the officer walking toward the truck by repeatedly kicking McDuff's windshield to the point that it cracked. McDuff responded to this by smashing the gas pedal and driving toward the other officers who had to jump out of the way to avoid being hit. They tried to follow McDuff, but he evaded them by driving without lights and going the wrong way down one-way streets. Ultimately, he parked his truck in the woods near US Route 84 
and tortured Brenda to death. Her remains weren't found until 1998, seven years after her murder. On October 15, 1991, yeah, you heard that date correctly, a mere five days after Brenda's murder, Macduff was seen arguing with a 17-year-old prostitute named Regenia Deanne Moore at a Waco motel. Shortly after this, the pair drove out into a remote area off Texas State Highway 6. Macduff tied the girl's arms and legs with some stockings before he killed her. Much like Brenda, she'd remain alone in the wilderness until 1998 when her remains were discovered. Though it wasn't proven, it is believed that Macduff is also responsible for the murder of Cynthia Renee Gonzalez. The 23-year-old woman was found in a creek bed in a heavily wooded area about a mile off of I-35. She was missing for six days before her body was found. Something I've often wondered about serial killers, and it's not all of them obviously, but there are a handful, is why the fuck do they enlist the help of accomplices? If the point is to rape and murder and get away with it, why are you intentionally adding a witness? I don't understand. But hey, it is often the case that these accomplices help put the psychopaths in prison, so I guess I should shut my mouth. Alva Hank Worley would end up testifying against Macduff in yet another murder, that of Colleen Reed. She was a Louisiana native who the men had snatched from a car wash in front of a handful of witnesses. Worley later told police that he had raped Colleen and tortured her with cigarettes, but that he hadn't participated in her murder. Macduff said he was going to take a girl that night. The men found her alone at the car wash. Macduff grabbed her by the throat and shoved her into the back seat of the Thunderbird they were driving. Please, not me, she said. Not me. And now I'm nauseous. She knew what was coming. Holy shit. Orley told the cops that he and Macduff had taken turns raping Colleen as they drove up I-35 and out into the wilderness. Macduff tied Colleen's hands behind her back, raped her on the hood of the car, and also, bear with me, tortured her sexually with burning cigarettes. This poor girl. After he was done, Macduff made Colleen get into the trunk of the car and asked Orley for a knife. He said he was going to use her up and get rid of her. Her body would be very difficult to find. Unfortunately, this wasn't the end of Macduff's rampage. Valencia Joshua was seen knocking on Macduff's door on February 24, 1992. Her body was found in a shallow grave behind the college campus where Macduff was living. She was just 22 when Macduff strangled her to death. The last woman that can be proven to have met her end by the hands of this monster was Melissa Northrup. She was kidnapped from the Quick Pack convenience store she worked at on March 1, 1992. Coincidentally, Macduff had previously worked at this store. He stole $250 from the cash register as well. His beige Thunderbird was found broken down about a block away from the store. Melissa would be found nearly two months later by a fisherman. She was floating in a gravel pit. At the time of her death, Melissa was pregnant with her third child. Macduff raped her before strangling her to death with a rope. Because Macduff's crimes were spread out across a handful of different counties, a coordinated investigation was difficult. 
It was learned that he was dealing drugs and also had an illegal gun, so the feds were able to get involved and issue a warrant for his arrest. Alva Worley was brought in for questioning on the basis that he knew McDuff. Worley admitted to his involvement in Colleen Reed's murder and was held in Travis County while the cops continued looking for McDuff. Did you guys ever watch America's Most Wanted? That show was my shit when I was a kid. I used to watch it with my dad all the time. On May 1st, 1992, a man living in Kansas City, Missouri was watching it and realized that the man they were featuring looked a lot like his co-worker, Richard Fowler. He called the Kansas City Police, who searched Fowler's name and saw that he'd been arrested for soliciting prostitutes. They compared Fowler's fingerprints to Kenneth McDuff's and confirmed the caller's suspicions. It was the same guy. McDuff was arrested at his trash collecting job south of Kansas City. Oddly enough, the arresting officers were the sons of the officers who had arrested McDuff in 1966. How is that for full circle? Kenneth Allen McDuff was executed by lethal injection on November 17, 1998. You'd think with how bad Texas fucked up by letting McDuff out before, they would have strapped him into the chair immediately after getting that guilty verdict. But they didn't. And honestly, it's probably good, because he would give up the location of Colleen's body shortly before he met his maker. Texas learned their lesson. They should have executed him when he murdered those three teenagers. But thanks to a Georgia man and his Supreme Court case, the death penalty was temporarily abolished in the U.S. That's why he got life with parole. Macduff's last words were, I'm ready to be released. Release me. They released you right into the arms of Satan, you sick fuck. According to the death row chef, because that's apparently a thing, I think I've found my next career choice if I ever leave my current job, his last meal was a hamburger fashioned to look like a steak, which was what he'd requested. Fuck it, one more case to go out with a bang. William Michael Mason, known as Billy the Kid, did something absolutely fucking heinous back in 1977 after being released from prison. A crime that many in 2023 would lose their minds over if it was still happening. He committed an actual hate crime. Mason, his wife Deborah, and some friends were out driving around one night in Texas. Of course it's Texas. Most of the cases in this episode are. What the fuck? While out raising hell, the group came across a car parked in the middle of the road. Being logical people, they got out and tried to push the car out of the way. It was at this point they discovered a black man named Curtis Henry passed out in the driver's seat. Don't drive drunk, kids, for real. You never know what could happen. The group tried to wake Curtis up, but were unsuccessful. It was at this point William Mason told the rest of them that he was going to show them how to kill a... I'm not going to say it, partially because I don't want torches and pitchforks at my door, and partially because it's not clear exactly what he called Curtis, but I do know it was a racial slur. Mason then shot Curtis in the head. For no fucking reason. That, my friends, is a hate crime. Mason fled to California, where he was apprehended and shipped back to Texas to await trial. While awaiting his sentence, Mason managed to escape from custody and was found hiding in a barrel outside the jail. The lesson here is, 
Don't leave barrels outside of the jail, what the fuck? Mason got 55 years for this murder. That's it. He was also given 55 years for an aggravated robbery he committed before the murder. Makes total sense, doesn't it? While serving his sentence, he became a high-ranking member of a prison gang, the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. Are we really surprised? Mason was later paroled. You can pick your jaw up off the floor now. I still have more story to tell you. On January 17, 1991, just 18 days after being let out of prison, Mason murdered someone else. He was at home with his wife, Deborah, and some other family members, including his kids. At some point during the night, Mason got angry about how loud the radio was and began arguing with Deborah in her bedroom. He slapped her around, like all decent men do, and she was crying and telling him, I love you, don't hit me. Mason responded to this by calling her a bitch and a whore and threatening to kill her. All of this over the volume of the fucking radio. My god. But it gets a whole lot worse. Mason told his brother to call another man by the name of Terry Goodman and have him bring over some plastic garbage bags. Things are a bit unclear at this point, but from what I gather, all of the adults drove to Mason's mother's house. Mason drove with his brother and Terry Goodman in Deborah's car out to the San Jacinto, yeah, I'm sure that's probably wrong, river. Deborah had been gagged, hogtied, and stuffed into the trunk. When they got to the river, Mason took Deborah out and placed her on the ground. She was still tied up when he took a large chunk of concrete and smashed her head with it. He then threw her into the river. Mason told his accomplices to lie to the police and say that Deborah had left his mother's house with two black men. The crime itself was absolutely fucking abhorrent and had no real reason for occurring. But what really fucks me up about it is that Deborah's two-year-old son was left alone in the house all night while his mom was being murdered. Deborah's body was found floating in the river 11 days after she was killed. The medical examiner found that her cause of death was a skull fracture with cerebral contusions due to blunt traumas of the head. Between the time of Deborah's murder and Mason's arrest, another senseless crime was committed. Less brutal, but still fucking ridiculous when you look at it. Mason assaulted his niece because she had gotten a ride from a friend who was racially mixed. This assault was horrible. Mason threw her on the ground and cut all of her hair off with a switchblade, telling her that he was doing it because she came home with a black person. Mason also shaved off her eyebrows, stripped her naked, and shaved her pubic area. This was bad enough, but he also invited people from the neighborhood to come look at her in the condition she was in. He was arrested sometime after this for the murder of his wife. William Michael Mason still sits on death row in Texas. He's old now, in his late 60s at the very least. He's been on death row for more than 23 years. He appealed his death sentence in 2015, but was re-sentenced to die for his wife's murder. I'm hoping to see his name pop up in an article sometime soon, but at this rate, old age is going to get him before the state has the chance. At least we know he's locked up and has no chance of hiding in a barrel or getting let out again. 
We hear all the time that the death penalty needs reform. But what about parole? How does it make any sense to let violent offenders out early? This episode barely scratches the surface of cases where paroled killers got out and killed again. The death penalty is a punishment. Opponents of it say we need rehabilitation efforts instead of punishment. But some people can't be rehabilitated and shouldn't be given a second chance. Or a third chance. You fuck up bad enough, that's it. End of the line. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. Share it on your internet somewhere. I'm available on Rumble, Odyssey, and most podcast apps. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. Rumble is also home to my extra content. Fuck YouTube. I refuse to censor myself. I'm going to end this one with a quote from an African guy whose name I know for a fact I will butcher to pieces, so I'll just link the site I pulled it from as the credit. We all deserve second chances, but not for the same mistake. See you next time.